Hello and welcome to episode 24 of The Beethoven Files. I'm Terence O'Grady, and today we're going to talk about Beethoven's Piano Concerto No. 3 in C minor, Opus 37. Beethoven had sketched some ideas for this concerto as early as 1796, but it wasn't completed until shortly before the May 1803 concert on which it was introduced. The question is, was the brunt of the work completed much earlier, for example prior to 1801, with only the finishing touches applied before the concert in 1803, or did the greater part of the compositional activity take place in 1802 and 1803? A number of Beethoven scholars have expressed views on this matter, and one of the most convincing is Leon Plantinga, who, employing the typical musicological puzzle pieces related to the type of manuscript paper, the watermarks on that manuscript paper, and the type of ink found in the surviving sketches, as well as the type of piano for which the composition was intended, and stylistic details found in the concerto itself, Using all of this information, Plantinga has concluded that the greater part of the work was composed later, in 1802 and 1803, and in fact, it may not have been quite finished until after its first performance in May. Beethoven's page-turner on the occasion of its premiere later commented that Beethoven must have been playing the solo part from memory because much of the score was indicated only in skeletal form and Beethoven's student Ferdinand Ries attested to the fact that when preparing for a later performance of the piece, he discovered that the solo part was not complete, and Beethoven had to produce a fully notated copy for him at that point. The fact that Beethoven had presumably improvised a bit of his concerto on the spot would not be terribly surprising given Beethoven's ability as an improviser. And, of course, there is plenty of historical precedent for this sort of thing in Mozart's premieres of his own piano concertos. Typical of late 18th century concertos, it has three movements, fast, slow, fast. The first movement in alla breve or cut time and marked allegro con brio is in the double exposition sonata form typical of the period. I explained a bit about it in episode 10 when we talked about Beethoven's first two piano concertos, but it doesn't matter if you missed that episode because the form Beethoven uses here will become clear as we go. The first theme is introduced in the strings alone in unison and octaves. The first phrase, four bars long, contains three distinct motives. The first an ascending minor triad, the second, a descending scale fragment, marks staccato, that takes us from the fifth scale degree back down to the tonic note, and the third, which alternates between the tonic note and fifth scale degree beneath it, again staccato. None of these elements are particularly remarkable. Probably the most distinctive is the third, which, although concluding the phrase here, seems more like a typical bass line or even a typical timpani motive although it is seldom actually assigned to the timpani as the movement progresses. Here's a simplified example of the first phrase. C minor is known as a special key for Beethoven, one in which he produced some of his most dramatic works. But this initial theme, while certainly dark and maybe just a little ominous, is not exactly dramatic at this point. It's too quiet, 
played piano, and two restrained. The second phrase of the first theme, the second four bars, is an altered version of the first, starting a note higher, shifted to the winds, and now harmonized in block chords. This is hardly unusual. Repeating the first melodic idea or a variant of it on another pitch level is common enough, but here it results in a dissonant minor ninth against the dominant chord below it, which adds a little more tension to the theme, especially when combined with the new sforzando accent on the downbeat of the second bar of the phrase. Here's another simplified example, this time the second phrase ending on the dominant. The third phrase, back in the strings, but still accompanied by the woodwinds, starts on the fifth of the scale and descends down by step, something like the second bar in the first phrase, but with slur marks replacing staccatos, and new and slightly surprising accents on the first and second beats of the second measure. After two bars, the strings all leap up a fourth and repeat the idea from there taking the stepwise motion down even further this time, before the first violins bounce up an octave and head to a fortissimo cadence in C minor. This is extended with a couple of tags, which actually take us off into a new tonal direction, as we'll see in a minute. Here's just the first violin part, minus the cadential tags. Okay, let's hear the first theme in an actual performance. You may notice in the third part of the theme, Beethoven inserts a very effective chromatic chord right before we get to the cadence on C minor, adding a little spice to a familiar formula. The first cadential tag reaffirms the cadence on C minor, but the second directs us to the relative major key of E flat, where we hear a variant of the first four bars of the theme. We then hear it again up a step as we head toward the dominant chord in E flat major. But it soon becomes clear that we'll be leaving E flat major behind sooner rather than later. Propelled largely by a chromatically descending bass line, we make our way toward E flat minor still prominently featuring the second beat accents as we go. By the way, the second motive from the first theme, that descending staccato scale fragment, also has a role to play at this point in the transition, although the line now descends in eighth notes, not quarters, since things tend to move more quickly in a passage such as this one, and the descending motion is then balanced by ascending motion still in staccato eighth notes. Here is the transition section.
Well, we thought we were in E-flat minor, but I suppose it's no real surprise that when we finally get to the second subject or theme, we're actually going to be in E-flat major after all, which you heard right at the end of my excerpt. After all, Beethoven began leaning in that direction as soon as the first subject was completed. And yet, it's still a mild surprise that we've actually moved to the relative major for the second theme. I say that because in the late 18th century concertos, the composer does not usually stray far from the original tonic key in the first exposition, the orchestral exposition, before the soloist comes in. Donald Tovey, in discussing this concerto, also expresses some surprise at the fact that Beethoven has moved to the relative major key for the second subject, suggesting, jokingly of course, that Beethoven must have temporarily forgotten he was writing a concerto rather than a symphony. But this is certainly not the first time Beethoven has made some personal adjustments to the standard forms of the day, and it certainly won't be the last. The second theme, presented in first violins and clarinets initially, is a stately one with touches of sentimentality created by its passing chromaticism and yearning accented nonharmonic tones. Here's the first presentation of the second theme. This eight-bar theme is immediately followed by a four-bar transition based on the first four bars of the theme that moves us away from E-flat major and toward, another little surprise here, C major. The theme is taken up by flutes and oboes at this point, but soon the orchestration is filled out substantially, the melody doubled by violins in octaves and with trumpets and timpani adding to the sforzando downbeat accents. But after eight bars, the C major cheerfulness is replaced rather suddenly by the original and more somber key of C minor, and we soon crescendo into a dramatic cadence in that key. At that point, Beethoven decides to bring back the first theme, the first four measures anyway, in the bassoons and low strings. In the short range, the tonality is a little ambiguous, but it doesn't take long for C minor to be reasserted with a clear cadence. But then we hear a much quieter new theme, a lyrical closing theme in C minor that is actually quite effective, presented in oboes, clarinets, and bassoons. It starts with a languid, repeated note melody that dies off gently after two bars, played by the oboe, con espressione, as the score indicates, which is answered by another two-bar phrase, livelier and with distinctive staccato markings in the first violin. The first two bars, especially the second, are repeated and varied, sometimes inverted, as we crescendo, then quiet, then crescendo again. Finally, in the closing measures of the first exposition, the first theme returns in its entirety, 
fortissimo as we drive to the cadence on C minor. Here is a fairly lengthy excerpt beginning where the first theme is first reintroduced, the first four bars of it, going to the new lyrical closing theme, the miniature development of that new theme, and the final return of the original C minor theme, closing off the exposition. We now find ourselves in the second exposition, the soloist exposition. That doesn't mean, of course, that the soloist will be present constantly. We still have some alternations of solo sections and 2D sections where the whole orchestra plays and the soloist drops out, a carryover from the Baroque concept of the concerto. In this soloist exposition, the pianist begins alone with a sweeping introduction of ascending 16th notes after the fermata that concludes the first exposition. The soloist's version of the first theme is not identical with the orchestra's initial version, but it is reasonably close, filled in naturally with a few trills and with some of the relatively longer note values filled in with shorter note values, including eighth note triplets and sixteenth notes and with some leaps to the upper octave, especially in the third phrase, under which the orchestral strings enter demurely to provide harmonic support. The modulatory transition begins in a familiar manner, but now adorned with sweeping triadic arpeggios in triplets, ascending, and sixteenth notes, descending, as well as more sinuous chromatic lines in sixteenth notes. Although the goal of E-flat major is the same as in the first exposition, and we move through E-flat minor again to get there, Beethoven goes about it a little differently this time and some of the motivic ideas heard in the earlier transition are presented in a fresh way here by the pianist. There is also a very compelling new theme introduced, still in E-flat minor at that point, although this theme does have its roots in motives from the original transition. Here is an excerpt from this transition, including the somewhat new theme in the piano, 
and, at the end, some very effective little pianistic flourishes consisting of parallel first inversion block chords in sixteenth notes, a device which is considerably more difficult to play cleanly than it may appear. We have now arrived at the more lyrical second theme, again in E-flat major, and the soloist gets the first bite. It's played gently over a broken chord accompaniment with minimal orchestral support. After four bars, the pianist begins to introduce offbeat sforzando accents not heard in the original presentation. After eight bars, the orchestra takes its turn, and we come to a clear cadence in E-flat major. The soloist then jumps back in, repeating the last four measures of the second theme with an extended and considerably more ornate version of the original cadence in E-flat. Here's the second theme through to its extended conclusion. We then hear the closing theme, first in the woodwinds, and then later in a slightly more ornate version in the piano. The soloist version actually delves into other key areas briefly, including E-flat minor, before introducing a codetta in E-flat major, based on swirling passages of sixteenth notes over repeated motives in the orchestral accompaniment reminiscent of that timpani motive from the first phrase of the first theme, which I referred to earlier. Here's an excerpt, starting with the closing theme, introduced by the winds, handed to the piano soloist for a more embellished version, a brief digression away from and back to E-flat major, and the codetta that takes us to the end of the second exposition, after one last glimpse of the opening four bars of the first subject.
I'm going to talk about the development section only in general terms with a couple of excerpts. It is not Beethoven's most dramatic development section. It is, in fact, surprisingly restrained for the most part. But that doesn't mean that it's not effective. There is an undercurrent of tension that is quite palpable, largely, I think, because of the very clever way in which he uses the so-called timpani motive from the first subject. Sometimes it's just the rhythmic profile as before, but at other times the shape of the original motive is exploited as well. My first excerpt begins not at the beginning of the development, but about a dozen measures into the opening 2D section and before the soloist has re-entered. We are at this point moving away from E-flat major and toward G minor, and we do so employing a variant of a theme Beethoven first employed in the modulatory transition in the first exposition, a powerful one with frequent accented dissonances on the first beat of each measure and sforzando accents on the second beat. Right after the point at which my excerpt cut off, the soloist enters, with a series of ascending 16th note scale passages similar to those which mark the penis entrance in the soloist's exposition. There the scale runs led up to a statement of the first subject. That is where the soloist is headed this time as well, but first, and surprisingly, the soloist proclaims fiercely the timpani motive from bars 3 and 4 of the first phrase of the first subject, which is immediately echoed by the upper woodwinds and then the strings. Only then does the soloist assert the opening two bars of the subject, now in G minor. The timpani motive is picked up by the cellos, who repeat it every other bar as the pianist continues on with a variant of the third phrase from the first subject. We're on the move tonally again. You can't expect a development section to stay in one key for very long, this time moving toward F minor, as the woodwinds take over the first subject against octave-heavy figuration patterns played by the pianist. But the so-called timpani motive is never absent for long. Here's an excerpt beginning with the introduction of the soloist. As you could hear, the woodwinds periodically restate the opening measures of the first theme, 
against which the piano provides mostly decorative flourishes, moving from a flow of eighth notes to one of triplets, and later sixteenth note duplets tossed back and forth between the hands as we prepare for a return to C minor and the beginning of the recapitulation, although my excerpt didn't make it quite that far. Recapitulations in concerto movements are not going to be simple repetitions of the exposition, either of the expositions, the orchestras or the soloists, now with everything in the original tonic key. And we see evidence of that right away in this recapitulation. It begins with a fortissimo orchestral tutti quoting the first two phrases of the first theme back in C minor. But instead of proceeding to the third phrase, the orchestral texture is reduced dramatically and we hear a little miniature development of the last two bars of the second phrase, this first in the strings, very quietly, and then a measure later in the woodwinds. This back-and-forth exchange of ideas continues, often drawing on thematic material from the transition sections in the original expositions, and with the soloist frequently providing dynamic figuration patterns against the orchestra's statements. Here's an excerpt beginning with the orchestral tutti that starts the recapitulation, followed by the interaction between soloist and orchestra I just described. You probably noticed that the second major key subject from the two expositions was absent from the development section. But now, introduced by that trill which you heard right at the end of my excerpt, it finally makes its appearance. It's in C major, Beethoven obviously concluding that this was not one of those major key themes which would work out well returning in a minor key. The closing theme, when it returns in the oboes and bassoons, also begins in C major. However, it does revert to C minor when the piano takes it up. And although the codetta, including the final tutti portion of that section, faints toward other key areas, when we arrive at the cadenza, we are firmly in C minor. Here's the second theme and the closing theme going to the first part of the codetta.
Beethoven's cadenza for this movement, there are others, of course, including one by Franz Liszt, draws clearly from the primary thematic material of the movement, although interspersed naturally with virtuoso passage work and swirling arpeggios. We're going to hear the last part of that cadenza. It concludes on a dominant seventh chord, which is normal enough, but that chord doesn't then launch us back into C minor, at least not directly. Instead, it launches an aside into F minor. Perhaps the most interesting thing about that aside is the solo role assigned to the timpani, which finally plays the timpani motive all by itself, very quietly, in alternation with swirling 16th note passages in the piano, which eventually, nine measures later, do return us to the expected key of C minor. Here's an excerpt beginning near the end of the cadenza, going through the passage where the timpani alternate with the soloist, and then driving on to the end of the movement. One commentator has characterized this movement as darkly brooding, and you can see why, even though the elegant sentimentality of the second subject does provide a bit of contrast here and there in both the exposition and recapitulation. But it is true that two elements in particular, the initial ascending minor triad, all the more sinister sounding because it is initially presented so quietly, and even more, the so-called timpani motive, which lurks in the background for much of the movement. These two thematic elements do seem to provide a sense of foreboding, which is only fleetingly mitigated by the more cheerful major key passages. At any rate, we're going to move on now to the second movement. The opening of the second movement, 3A time and marked Largo, would seem to transport us far, far away from the emotional world of the first. First of all, it's in the key of E major, a key extremely remote from C minor. We've seen Beethoven come up with some surprising key relationships between movements in the past, but nothing quite like this. And it would have been noticed, not just by the practicing musicians of the period, but quite possibly by devoted amateurs and regular concertgoers. That is not to suggest that the unusual key choice worked to Beethoven's disadvantage in this instance. Earlier, he had been criticized by some critics for playing fast and loose with the stylistic conventions of the period. But on this occasion, 
the critic from one of the major German musical journals of the day in 1805 described the movement as one of the most expressive and richly sensitive instrumental pieces ever written. We're going to focus primarily on the initial melodic statements. The opening theme is an impressive one. It shares some stylistic elements with several other great Beethoven slow movement melodies, but it also has some unique features of its own, especially in regard to its harmonic identity. The melody marked pianissimo and provided with surprisingly detailed pedaling indications by Beethoven begins in fairly typical fashion. It starts on the third scale degree, nudges up a step, and then flows down a third to the tonic note in a gentle melisma. In the first bar, we hear the tonic chord alternating with the dominant seventh. And then on the downbeat of the second bar, we encounter another dominant seventh, over which a non-harmonic tone in the melody dangles expressively. In the second half of measure two, we hear a new chord. It's a C-sharp minor chord, and it represents a deceptive cadence, where the dominant chord resolves not up a fourth or down a fifth to the tonic chord, as expected, but resolves up a step, or half-step instead. Now, there's nothing terribly novel about a deceptive cadence at this point in history. But most of the time, it's a purely local event, and the chords that follow return us securely to the original key. But that's not quite what happens here. For most of the next four measures, we hear a series of block chords presented by semi-staccato 16th note repetitions, which seem to suggest that C-sharp minor really is our goal. By measure 6, however, we land on a dominant 7th in the original key of E major, and two measures later we close the phrase with another dominant 7th chord, suggesting that the little side trip to C-sharp minor was a mere diversion after all. It's not that Beethoven or other composers have never done anything like this before, feigning a modulation in the opening measures of a slow movement. The thing is, now as we approach the second four-bar section of the opening solo statement, Beethoven still seems bent on introducing unexpected key centers into the mix. He introduces a new, more active melodic pattern and uses it to steer us in the direction of C major, although he again concludes the phrase with a dominant chord back in E major. Why do we tilt toward C major at this point? It's certainly distant from E major, but as some commentators have pointed out, it may be thought of as a reference back to the previous movement, where C major, as well as C minor, played an important role in the recapitulation. 
Would Beethoven's listeners have picked up on that connection? Maybe. Again, musicians would have been likely to. Would Beethoven have cared whether his listeners made the connection? Not necessarily. Composers sometimes provided links between movements of this sort because it satisfied their need for integration, regardless of whether most listeners were aware of it. It's after this point where the orchestra enters in the first tutti section with a melodic idea related to the first two bars of the piano statement, presented here by muted strings and doubled by the woodwinds. After four bars, the ornate melody reduces its level of activity, and Beethoven again reverts to repeated staccato sixteenth notes of a sort heard in the piano's opening statement, as we again appear, briefly, to be moving towards C-sharp minor but the final measures of the orchestral tutti section make it clear that E major is again our goal, as a more melismatic melodic flow returns and we hear a repeated cadence figure on E major. Here is the first part of that orchestral tutti. The soloist returns with a highly ornate variant of its original statement, often hovering far above the left-hand chords below. After four bars, the orchestra enters beneath the soloist, also with a variant of its original opening statement. Here's a little bit of it. Brief orchestral tutti sections occasionally interrupt the soloist, as you heard at the end of my excerpt, and eventually the first thematic statement is repeated in more or less its original form, although the soloist's flights of fancy become ever more ambitious and fantastic. Finally, there is a brief cadenza, after which the movement comes to an end, with a final, very gentle reference back to the first theme. But we are going to move on to the final movement, 
a catchy rondo in C minor, two-four time, and marked allegro. While it's really much more playful than tragic, it's an excellent movement, one of the great Beethoven concerto finales. The opening gesture of the refrain theme is a very distinctive one. Starting with an upbeat on G, the fifth scale degree, it moves up a half-step to A-flat on the downbeat of the first bar, and then plunges down a diminished seventh to three staccato eighth notes on B-natural, before resolving up to the tonic note. Several commentators have suggested that Beethoven is, again, forging links between movements here. The final chord of the slow movement employed in the first violin, A high G sharp. In this third movement, the first accented note is an A flat. It's an harmonic equivalent. Did Beethoven intend a link here? Very possibly. Again, would most listeners have caught on to that link? I think it's a little more dubious this time. In a live performance, there's always a bit of a break between movements, and it's uncertain how long the G-sharp would have remained in people's ears. Also, G-sharp was not actually the highest note in the final chord of the previous movement, because the final piano chord featured an E, the tonic note, a sixth higher. So perhaps the listeners may not have noticed the connection anyway. At any rate, it's a very distinctive gesture, that opening dropping of a diminished seventh, and quite memorable as an opening motivic gambit. And the momentum only increases as we proceed through the first four-bar phrase, since the last beat of the second bar introduces four sixteenths circling around the tonic, and bar four introduces four more sixteenths on the last beat, moving up the scale chromatically to link up with the first note of the second phrase. You'll notice how important the staccato markings and offbeat sforzando accents are in terms of defining the character of the theme. It seems in a way serious and yet also rather frolicsome. The first four bars end on a dominant chord. All we've heard so far is basically an alternation of dominant and tonic chords. The next four bars are a variant of the first four, ending this time on a G minor chord. The orchestra now joins in, the oboes taking on the theme itself against arpeggios and broken third patterns in the piano and light pizzicato accompaniment in the strings, all coming to an end again on G minor. Here's an actual performance to that point. We next encounter a somewhat contrasting section featuring the piano based on the opening two bars, but also introducing a new motive of descending 32nd note duplets alternating with repeated staccato notes. This leads to a miniature cadenza followed by six bars, which also draw on the opening bars of the refrain, but also introduce some new motives, which take us back to a cadence on C minor.
Now the pianist drops out, and we have the first real orchestral tutti section. It doesn't duplicate the piano's first thematic statement, but it does draw heavily from it, especially the first two bars, which are immediately repeated sequentially down a step before the orchestra continues on with a repeated cadential tag until finally closing on C minor. But we are going to skip that part and pick up the action with the beginning of the transition to the first episode. The orchestra begins it with some rather grim fortissimo block chords played twice, yielding both times to robust ascending arpeggios from the pianist. The pianist continues these arpeggios, modulating to E-flat major in the process, where the first episode is finally introduced. It's quieter, but still marked by some accented downbeats. This episode presents a strong contrast with the refrain theme. It's almost coquettish in its use of short, long motives, 30-second notes followed by dotted sixteenths, scampering down the scale in the first two bars. After eight bars, the orchestra takes over the theme, the melody doubled by flutes and first violins. Here is an excerpt beginning with the transition and going through the first two statements of the first episode. Right at the end of my excerpt, you heard the beginning of a rather long retransition back to the restatement of the refrain theme. Initially, it's heard as an extension of the episode theme we just heard, but soon new four-note scale-wise motives get bandied about in the woodwinds while the soloist becomes immersed in various triplet-based figuration patterns. This goes on for some time until the soloist introduces a new repeated cadential figure heavy on the offbeats and featuring a chromatically ascending bass line, which nevertheless figures out a way to end on E-flat major anyway. It's actually not until the next orchestral tutti that Beethoven gets serious about returning to C minor. Here's an excerpt beginning with that repeated offbeat-heavy cadential figure leading into the orchestral tutti section, which finally does take us back to C minor, and the final triplet-laden solo section, which takes us right up to the return of the refrain. This version of the refrain isn't completely identical to the first, but it's very close, and it concludes in the same way with a repeated and quite solid cadence on C minor. And then a new thematic idea is introduced, the second episode, now magically occurring in A-flat major, and Mark Dolce in the first clarinet. It's soon joined by first bassoon and shortly thereafter by the piano. 
This new theme, starting on the third scale degree in the new key, is another interesting one, which seems quite different from either the refrain or first episode in terms of mood, and yet it bears some definite similarities to the refrain melody in its use of staccato markings, a swirling sixteenth note motive on the second beat of the measure, and a prominent leap of a minor sixth, although this time it's an ascending leap. And it's a lovely tune, sweetly lyrical and very beguiling. After its initial 16 bars, split between woodwinds and the soloist, it introduces a simpler second section, again in the clarinet, really just a variant of a single two-measure phrase. Then the first part of the theme returns, in an increasingly busy version of the melody by the pianist, after which the woodwinds bring back the simpler second section, and the two combine for a final extension of the theme, which concludes with a solid cadence on a flat. So far, this is pretty typical rondo behavior, although beautifully negotiated, with a standard format of A, refrain, B, first episode, A, again, return of the refrain theme, and C, second episode. What happens next is a little more unusual, at least considering the way the next section develops. It's a development section, concentrating on motives from the refrain. This right after a new second episode. This new development section puts this rondo into the category of a sonata rondo, something we've seen before. Sometimes this sort of development section takes the place of a C section, but in this case, it follows it. And it begins with a clever fugue based on the opening four bars of the refrain. It starts in F minor and ends on a dominant chord in C minor, which shifts up a half step at the last minute. What happens next is uniquely Beethoven-esque. The soloist begins a passage of alternating eighth notes, left hand to right hand, in doubled octaves, starting loudly but decrescendoing quickly, and, after a few measures, pedaled together. This very unusual sonority introduces another statement of the opening bars of the refrain theme, this time in E major, and therefore sounding very different indeed, over a repeated pedal E in the orchestral bass line, 
and repeated arpeggio accompaniment in the piano left hand. So again, we seem to have the unusual juxtaposition of C minor with a very remote key, E major, just as before when we moved from the first movement to the second movement. You could hear the A-flats of the repeating octaves that introduce this passage as a gradual transition between the two keys, but I'm not sure that softens the shock very much, and it is a shock in this context, albeit a gentle one. Soon we're hearing fleeting echoes of the first three notes of the refrain theme in the cello and oboe, while the violins pick up on the throbbing eighth notes, and the soloist enters periodically with quickly ascending arpeggios, preparing us for a return to C minor. Once that key has been firmly established and then considerably embellished, we hear the refrain again. Following the refrain, a variant of the first episode is heard, now in C major, and a final reference to the refrain theme as well. But we are going to jump ahead all the way to the coda. It begins with a cadenza and a shift to 6-8 meter, which is exactly what Mozart had done in his C minor piano concerto, number 24. After the cadenza and the switch to a presto 6-8, a newly compressed version of the refrain theme is presented in C major. It retains the dramatic drop of a seventh, but the gesture now simply seems frolicsome and high-spirited, and it is in that mood that we drive through to the final cadence. I mentioned the similarity to Mozart's C minor concerto in the shift of meters at the coda, 
and many commentators have made reference to the fact that Beethoven may well have had Mozart's concerto in mind when approaching his C minor concerto. Of course, that's almost certainly true on some level, since we know how much Beethoven admired Mozart's music in general, and the shift to 6-8 in the coda probably was directly inspired by Mozart's example here. But for the most part, Beethoven was going his own way in this concerto, following his own very personal path. As fine a work as Mozart's is, there is nothing in it that prepares us for Beethoven's daring tonal relations, his linkages between movements, his purposely disrupted sense of continuity, and the very clever and far from obvious motivic interactions between pianist and orchestra. So where does Beethoven's third piano concerto fit in the grand scheme of things? It is frequently assumed that Beethoven's first and second concertos fall into one group, attractive works with some individual quirks, but basically a continuation of Mozart's 18th century concerto style. The fourth and fifth concertos, although quite different in their approaches, occupy another much more elevated level altogether, as we'll see in later episodes. And the third piano concerto apparently hovers between them. And yet I can't help thinking that this hovering status does a disservice to a work which is dynamic, extremely colorful, positively audacious in some ways, and as generally likable, if perhaps less profound, as any work Beethoven had composed to that point. For our next episode, we'll turn to Beethoven's Violin Sonata No. 9 in A Major, Opus 47, the so-called Kreutzer Sonata.